Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Hart and with me is lovely Gary Bain and we're at my ass, my ass, and we've got surrounded by idiot daughters, recalcitrant wives and all the other things that make life worth living. How are you this fine like Sunday? laundry. Sun- laundry, yes. How, how are you this morning, Gary? This fine Sunday morning. Fine Sunday. It won't be when they listen to it, you half-wit. Might be. If they listen to it on a Sunday. It would be then Sunday. Now, we're having a bit of a departure today, slight departure, because you, I, well-known as a uh, historian of uh, uh, all things Gallipoli, but today we're going to look broader than Gallipoli, Pete. We're looking at Turkey at war. Is that because I had to prepare a, an essay for uh, a talk for the Great War Group? <laughs> yeah, I've deleted the line about Alex might think. <laughs> so I don't say it. Right. Well, uh, so we're looking at Turkey uh, in the lead up to, uh, to, uh, uh, to the First World War and what, I don't know, a bit about what happened to them in the First World War because it, it's important to understand what's going on in Turkey. Now, is, is Turkey like, like, like a nation state, would you say? Not in uh, the contemporary fashion, but more the still sort of twitching corpse <laughs> of the once great Ottoman Empire. In fact, it was known as the sick man of Europe, Pete, because it went right up to the Balkans. It was, it was in Europe. Hey, it was indeed, as, as you've often told me. Uh, now, the, I would say it's interesting because the, the old enemy of the Turks, well, they've got many enemies, a bit like the British, they've got enemies everywhere you look. But one of their oldest enemies was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they've got a lot in common with them. So tell me, what do you think they might have in common with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which we've just done 47 podcasts with Nikolai Eberholst about? Yeah, I think you're, you're looking at the uh, diversity of the population. So of the approximately 40 million at the end of the 19th century, just about half were actually indigenous Turks. The rest were a conglomeration of many <laughs> nationalities, including Slavs, Greeks, Armenians and Arabs, scattered more or less wherever the tide of history had washed them up. Tide of history, Gary, you really are. You There's a lot of purple prose lately, isn't there? <laughs> um, now, there's something else as well, crisscrossing, as in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. What else is crisscrossing across the uh, the population? 
uh, religious differences. That added a, a further spice to this complex ethnic mix. Complexity is illustrated by the different treatment given to Protestant, Catholic and Orthodox Christians. Yeah, and the different types of, of the, the Muslims, like the, the, the Shiite and, and when I did this lecture last time, I forgot it as well. I forgot it again. The other sort of Muslims. That'll go down well. Well, well researched, Pete. <laughs> I like to do my best. <laughs> that probably was my best. Now, they'd lost most of their European territories as Greece, Romania, Serbia, Montenegro and Bulgaria had all gained their independence. Now, they're mainly Christian countries. That does rebalance the whole Ottoman Empire towards a more generally Muslim character. There's no two ways about that. Um, now, the, 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 what, what are the close friends? If we're considering the, the twitching corpse of the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, what's one of their oldest uh, enemies? Well, there's also the long-standing threat from Russia. Uh, the Russians yearned for Constantinople, not just because it had been the seat. Istanbul, Constantinople. <laughs> do you remember what you said before the podcast about concentrating? <laughs> uh, it had been not only because it had been the uh, the seat of the Holy Roman Empire, but because it offered control of the Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits, and hence untrammeled access to the Mediterranean. Hmm. Now. Uh, Turkey was surrounded uh, by enemies, but she's been gnawed away by the pressures of nationalism, just like Austria-Hungary, that, no, well, to repeat the word, that ate away at her, her vitals. Uh, um, and and, and the, the generally, the major European powers, they're, they're, they're after her. They want more and more concessions. They want to be granted areas of interest. My gosh, that's a nice area of interest I see you've got there. And... Uh, and uh, Basically, all that seemed to loom ahead of them was, was a comprehensive dismemberment. At uh, some point in the future. Yeah, yeah, it's like they're surrounded by really vicious serial killers with very pointy knives. Now, the Turks had to face all these threats hamstrung by an inefficient agricultural economy, minimal and really minimal heavy you industries. You mean bugger all? I do. That's a technical term, though. Uh, little or no exploitation of natural resources, and they were crippled by a huge national debt. That, that sounds like something. Up, that, who, who's that? that remark? Could be us, couldn't it, really? <laughs> the, the United Kingdom. That's us today. Yeah. Now bankruptcy. What a word. That led to what. The, the country's effectively bankrupt. That leads to more economic sanctions from the European creditors, which in turn cr cripples any chance of economic regeneration. I like to think of uh, what happened to Greece uh, recently. or well, not so recently now. It's probably 10 years ago. But Greece was, you know, in trouble and the measures imposed on her to gain financial respectability also buggered them. Technical term. Yeah. Now, any uh, infrastructure improvements financed from abroad reflected a, a foreign agenda, an economic <sighs> penetration <laughs> that was emphatically not in Turkey's long-term interest. Absolutely. Now, the head of the Ottoman state was a, a, a chap who began with the best of intentions, a bit like when we began these podcasters, serious broadcasters, um, Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And he, he'd been a reformer when he took power way back in 1876. That is a long time ago. Um, but what, what, how does his reign get off? Does it get off to a good start, would you say? No, he's uh, chastened by a dismal military failure in the 1877 war with Russia and then further humiliated by the loss of territory enforced by the Treaty of Berlin in 1878. Abdul Hamid degenerated into an ab uh, absolute, absolutist who uh, paradoxically he, he had his teeth who paradoxically could control 
almost nothing. So claims everything, can't control it. Uh, yeah, a bit like, again, Britain today. Now, the Flandering government of uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid was challenged in 1908 by a coup led by the Young Turks of the rather more prosaically named Committee of Union and Progress. Now, this is an in- they're a, they are an interest and, uh, in some ways, murderous group. They're a fractured group of dissidents. Where do you think the, the power lay within the groupings? Because it's civil servants, but there's another group that's really important. Well, it's, it's largely amongst young army officers and, as you mentioned, the civil servants. Their motivation was a common desire to modernise the Ottoman Empire and reverse long-term decline. Yeah, so they restore parliament, but they didn't actually seize power. And, and Ham, uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid continues to rule. It's all sort of a, a really confusing situation. And what do we do in confusing situations, Gary? Get confused. Get confused and evade the issue hoping that our podcast listeners will never notice that we don't know what we're talking no, about. <laughs> Others, uh, we might call them predators, saw their chance to act in the political instability. Yeah, this, this is, this is. I mean, I've got no real cross to bear for very unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> turkey. Whoops. Uh, but but, the, but the, the, the way they're treated is just murderous, isn't it? So the former province of Bulgaria, they were, they, they, they've declared independence. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, are they, are they friendly and supportive to the Turks? Yeah, they friendly annexed the provinces of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And just got themselves a load more trouble into the business then, isn't it? And yeah. Crete announced a union with Greece. It's all going really well. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's a somewhat half-hearted counter-revolution in 1909, and this gives the young Turks the, the, the chance to get their, and their, their iron fist. Uh, around uh, power, basically. Uh, I think I've crossed my uh, thingies there. Yeah, I think what you mean is they seized power. A brief period of martial law followed. Abdul Hamid was deposed to be replaced by the figurehead of Mehmed V, and Parliament was again re-established. Now, they've got power, but do you know what? The underlying problems have gone nowhere. They, they're still there. And let's sum them up again, because this is crucial to hammer it in to both our pea brains and the massive intellects that are listening to us. Modernisation could not be achieved without ceding even more control to foreign powers. The economy was still moribund. That's easy for you to say. It was. Foreign powers seemed to be circling ever closer as they sensed an opportunity to strike. Greedy eyes lingered lustfully on almost every portion of the Ottoman Empire. France, well, they liked Syria. They've always wanted Syria and Lebanon, yep. Great Britain, well, we're the worst. Palestine. Persia and Mesopotamia. Yeah, funny, we're always fighting in those places. And uh, as mentioned before, Russia. Constantinople itself, of course, yeah. Or Istanbul as we now know it. Not Constantinople. No. Istanbul, not Constantinople. Do, do, do. Now, the young Turks, didn't they sing Istanbul, not Constantinople? It was young somebody's. <laughs> now, the young Turks did not have the means to achieve modernisation. Outside assistance only came uh, with strings that threatened a further spiral of decline. Yep, and then to make matters worse, another foreign power seized its chance. September 1911, Italy launches an attack to seize Tripolitania. That's easy for me to say. And the, oh God, the, the Dodecanese. Dodecanese. You go for your holiday there, don't you? Uh, which resulted in a brief war with Turkey. Well, it would do. Turkey, yeah, would, yes. Yeah. Um, now, uh, how do the young Turks respond? Do they they turn to democracy, the people, to uh, to a sort of spirit of all together now? Yeah, they become increasingly dictatorial. 
and an internal political crisis erupted in 1912 when more liberal elements... That's you, Gary! ...tried to manipulate the political system to remove the Young Turks. Well, now, worst of all, Turkish weaknesses demonstrated in the war with Italy, you know, this is all going off at the same time, causes the Balkan states to go, aye, aye. <laughs> so what did they do? In October 1912, uh, the Balkan League of Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria and Montenegro attacked Turkey, otherwise known as the First Balkan War. Yeah, and, and people don't realise how close to the First World War, the Great War, this is. This is October 1912. It's only, it's less than two years. The start, you know, it's amazing. Um, the, the Turks failed to concentrate their uh, forces and, uh, um, and, and this is all summed up in a very good book by Ed Erickson, uh, who's the, the leading expert on Turkey. Uh, and in just a couple of months, they're, they're really badly defeated with severe losses. Um, December 1912, an armistice. So just two months into the war and a peace conference is convened in London. And, uh, is that going to go well for the Turks, do you think? Well, it seemed likely that it was going to strip Turkey of all of her European Balkan possessions. So that's everything the other side of the Dardanelles and uh, Bosphorus Straits. That Paradoxically, these defeats gave the Young Turks a chance to restore their position. Ow! Well, Enver Bey, who was a volatile 31-year-old army officer... I'm going to say before we go on, volatile is a complimentary word for someone who is actually a thoroughly nasty chap. Uh, ...was enraged by the suggestions of surrendering Adrianople and Thrace to Bulgaria, and he led an armed raid on the sublime port which seized political control for the young Turks. I like a nice glass of sublime port. Yeah, you do. You have got a sophisticated palate. I'll just have a beer or cider. Now, further complex, <laughs> further complex manoeuvrings brought together could you explain the three the men. Could you explain the complex manoeuvrings, Gary? Yeah, it's like manoeuvring, but really complex. Uh, that brought together the three men who would dominate the political scene in Turkey in 1914 as the three Pashas. That definitely sounds like a pop group. The three amigos, the three Pashas, yeah. And they were... Well, these are, these are a bad lot. I don't like any of them. Enver Bey... Uh, that's the one we've already discussed. Uh, who's the second one, Gary? Jamal Pasha, who was a former military officer. And then probably the worst of them all? Uh, Mehmed Talat, who was a civilian politician with a history of young Turk activism. So, it's a mixture of army officers and civilians, uh, you know. Um, uh, right, uh, so they... <laughs> just noticed another Alex reference. Yes, so I, I deleted that Alex reference. Now, they withdrew from the peace negotiations. What, the Young Turks and the war, Yeah, and the war accordingly resumed in February 1914. Which I want to point out how close to August 1914. February. Calendar with Pete and Gary. Yeah. Hmm. Read your calendar. Um, what happens? Well, uh, there's more military disasters for Turkey and they're forced to accept defeat and the loss of both... Ad I, that you pronounce it so beautifully. Adrianople. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to the Bulgarians and Yanina to the Greeks. Um, uh, and they have to accept that at the Treaty of London in June 1913. Um, so it's all over. The, 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 Balkan, the first Balkan War is the only Balkan War. Well, just when it seemed completely hopeless, everything was lost, the Balkan League spontaneously imploded. No, the Balkan League implode? Aren't they sort of unified by a common love of the Balkans? A bitter dispute over conflicting territorial claims caused Bulgaria to launch a preemptive strike on Greece and Serbia. Their old thereby friends. Thereby triggering the Second Balkan War oh. in June 1913. 
Well, uh, anybody else join in just yeah. for a laugh? When Romania and Montenegro joined in, Bulgaria was badly isolated and forced to withdraw from Thrace. Now, Turkey took immediate advantage and succeeded in regaining Adrianople without becoming entangled in serious fighting before the war ended in August 1913. A year. A year before Amazing. the Great War. And Bulgaria had lost nearly all its earliest bowls and Turkey was back, you know... The- Back to back to normal, if you like. Uh, it's normal, normal, though. No. Well, normal's not, because the overall weakness of the Turkish position remained. But the Balkan War has also exposed uncertainty as to the possible responses from the Austrians and the Russians. Well, you'd have expected them to join in the Balkan Wars, But they you? didn't. They didn't. Um, perhaps they weren't ready. Perhaps... There's too much, too much hanging on it. Perhaps they weren't desperate enough to risk triggering a full-scale war at that point. Possibly. There's, possibly. Who knows? Now, uh, the recapture of Adrianople cemented the authority of the Young Turks across the country and with the army, their real power base. Yeah, that is it, isn't it? Now, they'd been through the fire and their aims were now far more clearly defined by what they'd abandoned. Indeed. Well, firstly, as I'm not sure about the first point, but it's one that I've seen in several places. Islamism, the Muslim faith, had, that had been strongly associated with the Sultan's regime. Uh, but liberal support was not compatible with the methods of the Young Turks by this time. So... Um, What's left of them, really? What are the Tur- you see? They, they they're not going to centre on that. What are they going to centre on then? Well, a drive to modernisation and an increased nationalistic concentration on their Anatolian heartlands, the area that would be the uh, beating heart of modern Turkey. More more, more purple prose. Yeah, I don't know why you write it, Gary. Be- beating you- heart of modern Turkey. Boom, 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 diddy, boom, diddy, boom, diddy, boom, diddy, boom, diddy. Now, the British theoretically claimed a long-standing friendship with Turkey. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> Perfidious Albion, would you say? Yes, but here was... Well, I can't say that, so I wouldn't. <laughs> but here was an amity that friendship. could easily be confused with enmity. Yeah, that I seem to be I making... I can't say either of those. No, I seem to have been making some confused sort of statement there. Uh, there's no real friendship for Turkey, is there, coming from Britain? What do I mean by this? Well, Britain had already taken control of Egypt and Cyprus in the late 19th century. Yeah, Egypt in 1882, and uh, I am writing on the Sudan. And, uh, and Gary, is that your phone, darling? No. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so we'd already bagged Egypt, Cyprus. E- Cyprus is quite small. Egypt is not small, is it? Uh, yeah. It's not. Bad, Gary. Now, there's something else. Uh, uh, in 1914, they developed a new interest. Interest, as in... (laughs) Yeah, I think you're referring to the uh, oil fields of the Persian Gulf. And it didn't take a great deal of insight to guess their ambitions in the overall Mesopotamia And where is Mesopotamia, Gary? Uh, Well, that's sort of Iran, Iraqi area, isn't it? Yeah, it's often described as between the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's exactly what I was going to say. Well, you did sort of say it. Britain and her businessmen... We're yeah. enjoying profiteering in, in so, Turkey. Th- were they being friendly or were they profiteering? Profiteering, which yeah. is why I said they were enjoying profiteering. No, I see. I see the method in your madness. Now, the regular outbursts of popular indignation in Britain of various real or imagined Turkish were atrocities real. were not only hypocritical 
given the not infrequent instance of similar deplorable behaviour by the British Empire throughout her history, but also largely synthetic, whipped up by politicians looking for a convenient external enemy. Well, politicians will always do that. Uh, either It's either the enemy within or the enemy without, and it just depends what phase they are. Um, what about the The British had supplied a naval m- mission. That was under Rear Admiral Arthur Limpus. Uh, that was based in Constantinople. Uh, that's there to strengthen the Turkish Navy. That's that's kindly. That's lovely of us, isn't it? We're obviously doing that to help the Turks. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm just fixated on his name, Arthur Limpus. So, I, I, sorry, I really am. Um, yeah, but Limpus but Dickus. It was, but it was only being done. Ah, there goes old Limpus Dickus. <laughs> but they were only doing it so they could act as a barrier obstruction to Britain's potential rivals. I know, in particular. Uh, well, the Russians, yeah. I think. Absolutely spot on. Um, the, the, the Turkish naval rearmament frustrates the Russians who, who felt that, really, really, Britain, really? So we're not only annoying the Turks, we're annoying our entente cordial pals as well. Hmm. Who else is another bastard friend? Uh, the German Empire, otherwise known as Bastard Friend, was another false friend to Turkey. Her camaraderie was also a thing of smoke and mirrors, masking long-term ambitions to secure new commercial spheres of influence stretching from Germany to the Persian Gulf. Well, the symbolic, the, it is symbolic of it because it was never completed. That's the uh, Baghdad to Berlin Railway, which they were busy Constructing, they were actually building it, and they got parts of it built. Yeah, uh, just never completed. It's a, it's called economic penetration. It would be. You'd call it buggery. Germany also supplied a military mission to strengthen the Turkish army, in counterpoint to the British naval mission. Yeah, they did that, and uh, again, they're uh, they're doing it uh, for for a reason to. to to maintain the status quo so that they can take advantage of it. Uh, they also did something else, which is rather more controversial, and and has deep. Uh, meaning to those of us who study Gallipoli. What's that? Well, in November 1912, Germany sent the battlecruiser Gerben to visit Constantinople to demonstrate that Germany had serious pretensions to challenge the Royal Navy. Yeah, and uh, those of you who listen to our, uh, I don't know whether it's out yet, I have no idea, uh, our podcasts on Jutland, the lead up to Jutland, will know about the naval race. Of course, many of you will know about the naval race anyway, probably more than we do. Now, another year, another crisis. In December 1913, the the Germans were set to appoint Lieutenant General Limon von Saunders as commander of the Turkish First Corps. Now, he's an interesting chap. He was not really first-rate general. He'd not not been overly highly considered in Germany. Uh, But he was sent to... There was already a long-standing German military mission, but this this would have given Limon command of, of what unit? Limon. Limon von Saunders. Yeah, Limon. Yeah, yeah he yeah. liked to be called Limon. He liked to be called Limon, did yeah. he? All right. Uh, it would give him command of the unit responsible for the, the defence of the Straits, wouldn't it? This jagged, uh, sorry, this jagged, this jagged uh, exposed Russian nerves as they feared the prospect of a Turkish army strengthened by close military cooperation with yeah, Germany. Because they, they wanted it. They wanted the, that area. Uh, Sabre Atlane ensued and what happens? Well, a compromise is reached whereby Limon von Saunders uh, was promoted to Inspector General of the Turkish Army and hence not actually in command of the Straits. Well, that sort of diffuses it all, doesn't it? But uh, I, I get the sense that through these wars, accumulated resentments are beginning to build up, aren't they? Everywhere, on all sides. 
When in July 1914 it became apparent that the European situation was escalating what's out that? of what's, all what's, control, that will uh, be the uh, shooting of Archduke Ferdinand, well, and his wife. Uh, it was equally evident that isolation could be very dangerous in a world at war. And even worse, as something that was it would be even worse for Turkey. Well, you couldn't afford to be on the losing side, and that would surely mark the final dissolution, uh, dissolution of a tottering empire. It would have finished Turkey off. So they want to be on the winning side. They want a strong ally. So, so how do you choose that? Well, it's a complex situation. It's no surprise that there was no clear-cut course of action evident. Yeah, key young Turks, now that's Enver and Talat in particular, were in favour of an alliance with Germany. They felt their military and naval strength would be a sure source of, of, of just victory, of strength, of being on the winning side. They also, Germany is a far less immediate threat. Why, why do I say she's less threatening immediately? Well, she's got far less obvious territorial ambitions. Now, a young intellectual attached to the British Embassy in Constantinople pondered on what was happening. And this is one of your favourites. This is Charles Lister of the British Embassy at that time in Constantinople. Great man. Uh, a man who was later killed at Gallipoli. And uh, we want to visit his grave, don't we, Gary? But we never managed it because it's on a Greek island. Anyway, this is uh, what he says. It is difficult for us to make out the Turks' attitude, to, attitude towards Germany. I don't think the Turk has any liking for the German. He looks on him as useful and has boundless confidence in his efficiency. It was this conviction that Germany was sure to win which had to be met. There is, after all, something to be said for those who were throughout convinced that it was in Turkey's interest to go to war on Germany's side, such as Envers and others of the soldiers. Turkey could alone hope from the Central European powers for any reversal of the Balkan settlement arrived at in 1913. France was herself at war and therefore unable to lend Turkey money. This fact precluded any possibility of peaceful regeneration and raised the spectre of internal disruption and the fall of the Enver regime. Add to this the dazzling nature of the German promises. Wow. Um, oh, there's, there's something else, though. Uh, Germany, that's part of which uh, which allied grouping would we call them? Uh, the Central Powers, which included, obviously, Austria-Hungary and Italy. And uh, when were that? When were... Hang on. Aren't they Turkey's... Well, they were very recent enemies, and uh, they were enduring grievances. Now, some others of the young Turks favoured an alliance with the, the Entente. Uh, we needn't go into that terribly much because uh, it, it gets complicated. And others were for a sort of armed neutrality, i.e. trying to keep out of it. Uh, overall, I think there's a fair degree of confidence um, that the Germany would defeat the French and the Russians. Uh, but uh, there's a hesitation about betting the whole future of the Ottoman Empire on... on well, it's a gamble. It's just a bloody... Ga it's a bet. It's a, the, the clues in the word. And many Turks also feared that their army was not yet ready for war so soon after their traumatic experiences in the Balkan Wars. Which was only a year before. Uh, well, now, <laughs> there's lots of doubts, but uh, the, 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 the cabal at the centre, uh, Enver-led cabal, uh, they, they negotiate a secret Turco-German alliance. This is super secret. This is before the war started. Uh, well, almost before. So what are the treaty conditions? Well, Germany promised to help recover the Turkish territories lost in recent wars and to guarantee her current borders if 
Turkey joined the war in the event of a Russian attack on Germany. So that was negotiated. But then, before it had even been formally signed, on 2nd of August, the Germans declared war on Russia first. So, 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 the second, it was being signed on the 2nd, but on the 1st of August, Germany had attacked Russia. Well, declared war on Russia. So that, in, in effect, the treaty's invalid. Uh, well, yeah, but it didn't prevent the Germans exerting pressure on Turkey to join the war. But the evident lack of any political consensus amongst Turkish politicians severely restricted the actions of the pro-Germany politicians, especially when Italy and Romania both failed to honour their treaty obligations to join the war alongside the other central powers of Germany and Australia. Yeah, it's all that's left, isn't it, really? Um, however, the Turks be- did begin their mobilisation pro- 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 process. Why? Why, if they're not at war? Well, they could hardly have left their Balkan and Russian borders unguarded, could they, as Europe plunged into war? All men... Between 20 and 45 were required to register at the recruiting office within five days, while all reservists were called up. A lot of this is theoretical as well. Uh, uh, you know, um, it would take months, months and months and months to complete. But uh, well, I'm, I, I, we've got a reaction. I've taken this reaction. Uh, I found it in a book uh, by uh, Eugene Rogan. His book's quite well known at the moment. It's been a bit of a hit, The Fall of the Ottomans. And this is a quote from a Shiite Muslim cleric from South Lebanon, part of the Turkish Empire. And uh, this is what Gary's going to say as this Shiite Muslim cleric. The people were deeply troubled and agitated by the news. They gathered in small groups in public spaces, astonished and bewildered, as if confronting the day of judgment. Some wanted to flee, but where would they go? Others wanted to escape, but there was no way out. Then we heard that war had broken out between Germany and Austria on one side and the Allies on the other side. This only increased the fear and alarm of the outbreak of a murderous war. Now... The 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 the, 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 the sort of mobilisation. This isn't declaration of war. This is mobilisation. What impact do you think that has? You're a you're a high powered uh, business executive, or oh. were now you're a jobbing historian. Well, as yeah. might be ex- jobby is as might be expected. It caused chaos in agriculture and industry. Why? Well, trade stops in its tracks with the closure of the Dardanelles and Bosporus Straits. Debt soared. Taxation was increased. Hey, sounds a lot like you. Uh, requisitions and uh, reparations introduced to secure what was needed. And, of course, money begged from Germany. Yeah, so uh, mobilisation. Of course it calls up all the workers. Uh, who's going who's gonna to get the harvest in? Who's going who's gonna to do the industry? Who's going to do anything? Bloody hell. Uh, now, at this point, I expect the British were performed uh, with their tactful, normal brilliance, uh, I, I should imagine. We, we, we just really, you know, soothed Turkish nerves. No, we, uh, we provoked them. It was almost as if the British government had set about creating a situation designed to deliver a pre-packaged Turkey to the central powers. Oven ready. Ah. Uh. A bit like Brexit. Mm. Now, first, there was a staggering degree of laissez-faire within the uh, Foreign Office. The British ambassador to Turkey was on holiday from the 14th of July to the 16th of August. Now, this is just ridiculous. He should have been at his post. He should have been monitoring the local situation. He should have been judging and and organising a diplomatic response. But just at this stage, a simple gesture of friendship might have made all the difference in keeping Turkey neutral. Uh, Because that's actually the default position. They are neutral. Um, But what do do they get? What do they get from the British? Well, a sort of casual indifference. Worse, worse, 
Worse. Well, the, the British naval mission had been advising expenditure on destroyers or torpedo boats to defend their home waters. But the Turks looked to a possible resumption of war with Greece and contracted to purchase two dreadnought battleships, which were to be constructed in British naval yards. They've always liked the Greeks, Turks. Now, the exorbitant cost of this was met by public subscription. The Sultan Osman and the Rashade were fast approaching completion in the summer of 1914. Yeah. Uh, now, this is a temptation to the British because uh, they could take them over and augment the Grand Fleet because the Grand Fleet is at its weakest point in 1914 in the sense of they're not all gathered together. The, 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 the Germans could come out at the moment uh, that they chose. Uh, so who makes the decision? Well, it's the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, and he decides that the acquisition of two dreadnoughts was well worth the risk of a dangerous rupture with Turkey, and the ships were taken over on the 1st of August. The deed's done, the die's cast. Well, I, I think this is a, a very dodgy decision. Uh, I understand it in one sense, but was it really worth risking Turkish neutrality at that crucial time in 1940. Let's look at Churchill's later arguments when he's promoting the Dardanelles and Gallipoli as a way to end the war. What do, Was it worth risking the war with the Turks? Was it worth the geographical isolation of Russia the, by the closure of the Dardanelles? Was it worth a, a, a possible threat to the, uh, the Suez Canal? How would you answer these questions? Was it buggery? Technical term. Technical term. Now, despite even this grievous provocation, when the British declared war on Germany on the 4th of August, the Turks still backed off. War still seemed a step too far. For the moment, at least, they would remain neutral and examine their options. But at the same time, the Germans didn't give up hope. And uh, the, the, it's like a slow-burning fuse of Turkish resentment at the confiscation of the Sultan Osman and the Rashidia. Uh, that, that's ignoring at the entrails of, of, of Turco-British relations. Uh, something that made it worse, though. Well... A pair of grey shadows Ooh. was flitting across the Mediterranean. On the 4th of August, the Gurdon and the Breslau under Rear Admiral Wilhelm Souchon made a failed effort to disrupt the embarkation of French troops bound for the Western Front. Now, they then escaped the French and British fleets and arrive... Uh, there's loads of kerfuffle there, and Churchill's partly responsible for this as well. But they arrive uh, 10th of August at the Dardanelles, uh, where they're allowed to pass through. Uh, how come that? Well, it was uh, uh, cloaked by, it, frankly, transparent ruse that the Germans had sold them to Turkey to replace the ships stolen by Perfidious Albion. So oh, we got that again. We've so got, uh, we've they, got that in again. They, yeah. they put fezes on the uh, the, the German on the crew. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now this 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 the, the escape of the Garbon Breslau seems to imply the Royal Navy doesn't, after all, rule the waves quite as much as the uh, you know. As, as was thought, and at a stroke, it makes the attractions of a, an alliance with Germany much more tempting. Yeah, the British naval mission was first sidelined and then rendered redundant as the redoubtable Admiral Shushan was appointed to command the Turkish Navy. So, but the Turks still prevaricate. They still avoid that final step of a formal declaration of war on the German side. Uh, then Enver strikes, Enver and his cohorts. Yeah, they succeed in wrestling political control of the situation and unilaterally instructed Sushon to take the Gerben and Breslau, accompanied by Turkish cruisers and destroyers, on an aggressive sortie into the Black Sea. Now, there's still arguments about how much Enver intended Sushon to act as he did, uh, but, but whatever happened, it was asking for trouble. And on 29th of October, Sushon's ships attack Russian ports, provoke Russia into a declaration of war on Turkey, 
Berwick on the 2nd of November, 1914. Uh, British react swiftly, don't they? Yeah, Churchill ordered the Navy to bombard the Turkish forts at the entrance to the Dardanelles, even before his government had completed the formalities of actually declaring war. Well, who bothers with that these days, you know? And at this point, we should take a short break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now let's have a look at the Turkish army. It was large with 36 Kader divisions, which had a peacetime strength of just over 200,000 men and 8,000 officers, which would expand to a wartime mobilised strength of approximately half a million, with a capacity to expand to about 800,000 after six months. In total, the, the end thing, they reached 45 divisions with a total mobilised strength during the war of some 2,873,000 men. Uh, that includes a, a paramilitary, paramilitary gendarmerie and the Navy. That's their military force. Um, now, this conscription system, you noticed before that I was a little sceptical about it. Now, the young Turks had done something for the non-Muslims of the country, something that they must have been really pleased about. What was it? Well, the, the, uh, they'd extended the conscription system to include non-Muslims. They must have been delighted. For the first time in 1908. So called up at 20, men would serve their period of service and then be assigned to the reserves where they were liable for call-up in the event of war. Universal in theory, the system seemed to allow almost everyone except poor agricultural workers to slip through the net. 
Yes. Well, the Turkish army organised into infantry divisions and each was consisted of three regiments of three battalions. Uh, it's a triangular s- a structure and it, it, it's, very, it's very resilient. Uh, most countries adopt it. We adopt it in, uh, in, in 18, don't we? Because um, we used to have four, bat- four battalions in a, in a brigade, uh, which is the equivalent to their regiment. Uh, what was the army like? How was it uh, in strength in, in material terms? Yeah, uh, despite those numbers, the army was woefully ill-equipped and cripplingly short of modern artillery, machine guns and even Mauser rifles. Indeed, many soldiers were only armed with late 19th century single-shot Martini Henry or Martini Peabody rifles. Yep, munitions of all sorts, uh, dreadfully short supply. Uh, they, 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 they can't get enough. That, uh, and, and when they do, the factories are, uh, that, that they're trying to get uh, munitions out of, uh, quality control's all over the place, uh, and many of the shells fail to go bang, which is a bit important. By the way, we have similar, we have similar problems. Yeah, yeah. 1915 yeah, yeah. and into 16. Yeah. Yet this distressing catalogue hid some solid military virtues. What, Gary, what? Well, you could argue of these, the most important was the quality of the ordinary Turkish soldier. Yeah, badly led and, uh, sorry, badly clothed and fed. They're very well led. Um, they, 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 they were used to hard life. It, it, it was up there. The old joke in the British, you must have had a hard paper around. Uh, they had got a hard paper around it. It was a tough civilian existence. And life was cheap, wasn't it? Um, yeah, so well, that, that meant they coped well with the privations of military life as they were hammered into shape by a draconian disciplinary system. And they're fabulous troops. They, they turn into fabulous troops uh, on the defence. Um, the, the Balkan Wars had been a disaster uh, due to overambitious uh, uh, operational plans but the troops themselves during those battles had fought with considerable grit and determination when they were given the chance Uh, um, now some of the harsh lessons of the Balkan Wars had been to some extent assimilated it's only a year later but uh, what 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 has their training begun to emphasize at least in theory Turkish military doctrine was based on the German military example with manuals directly translated into Turkish yeah, so there's a big emphasis on the importance of mobility, isn't there? The value of achieving superiority in the firefight that preceded any battle. Necessity of digging trenches to consolidate features of tactical importance. Now, this might appear obvious, but they, they, they grasped it. And, as we've commented on a number of times for the Germans, the importance of immediate counterattacks to regain lost ground. And uh, just a side where they, de- they seem to have developed the ability to produce extremely skillful snipers, as uh, we've often heard in oral history interviews from Gallipoli. Um, now, uh, Enver Pasha, he was Minister of War at this point. Uh, he, 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 he culled all the old incompetent or overly political officers since, he, you know, since 1913. Um, I'm not sure. Always, always worries me, culling of officers, in the sense of you take out the good with the bad often. But uh, the, the, the overall, the, the officer corps does seem to have been, become more professional. Uh, that's a judgment others have made rather than us, isn't it, to be fair? But there's something else had been, had, had been achieved. Yeah, you're talking about uh, the fact that that was enhanced by the existence of a whole generation of carefully trained staff officers. So overall... They've got a grim determination not to be beaten again. Now, the Turkish Navy, the, 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 their priority was to, uh, to, to win a naval race with Greece. That's, that, that's why they'd ordered the two dreadnoughts. Uh, they'd draw, and, and that wasn't all they'd ordered, Gary. They'd ordered two cruisers and four destroyers. Did they get any of them? 
<laughs> None were delivered. Now, uh, putting aside the Garban and Breslau, which duly arrived in August, um, the, the Turkish fleet was obsolescent. Uh, and I, I just like these, these dates. So they had two pre-dreadnoughts. How old were they, Gary? 20 years old. Uh, they had uh, one coastal defence ship. <laughs> How old was that? 38 years old. Two protected cruisers. That's not so bad. They're 10 years old. 10 years old. old. And eight destroyers. Don't know how old they were. No, you don't know. I've written that down. (laughs) Now, in conclusion, Turkey was a a distinctly unthreatening opponent if left to her own devices. Well, they could try and promote... uh, We'll go through these. uh, A a jihad or holy war amongst the Muslim populations of the British Empire uh, and elsewhere amongst the French and uh, the Russians. And this was a, a big fear to British statesmen. Why? Uh, well, they've got memories of the Indian Mutiny of 1857 and uh, it, it still sort of resonated so considerably how, how, Let's just think about it. And I, I like to put this point because of history. That the Indian Mutiny was uh, 43, 50, 57 years ago from that point. Now, 57 years from now is when? Backwards? Yeah. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. It's about 1970-something. I think it's probably 1960. But, but well, it's 2022 point, now. But the point is, that's not long ago. 52 years ago would be 1970, yeah. So 1960-something. So the point is that that's not Thanks long ago. That. Sorry about that. I thought I'd spring that on you. And uh, maths with Pete and Gary. Uh, but that's not long ago, is it? It's not... The 60s are not ancient history, are they? So you can understand why something that happened... At, in 1857 is still relevant because things that happened in in uh, like uh, Beeching's railways for instance like uh, like uh, the pound in your pocket they're still you know we still listen to music from that time and it's that still did, relevant. did have a real impact as we know from Gallipoli Kitchener's behaviour was influenced by that fear especially Kitchener because of course he had the Egypt experience now the, what else could the Turks do so let's let's look at that we're looking at how they can threaten the British how else Well, they could cut British oil supplies in Mesopotamia. They could also launch an attack from Palestine across the Sinai Desert to cut the uh, Suez Canal. That was the British route to India. I suppose they could. And uh, they could also, if they really fancied it, invade the Russian southern flanks. Have you got southern flanks, Gary? Yeah, and the Caucasus Mountains. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so let's look at how this went then, all right? How How did they go? How did the Holy War go? Well, the Holy War or Jihad was proclaimed by the Sultan and formally read out on the 14th of November 1914, but it gained little real traction. Yeah, it caused some increase in, in recruitment amongst strong Muslim communities within the within the Ottoman Empire. Um, and a few individuals changed side, particularly when they caught prisoners. There's a few examples of this amongst the Indian Corps, who, although I just want to make emphasise the Indian Corps fought bravely and, and were incredible value to the British Empire, but, you know, but a few individuals did. But it doesn't tr- create trigger any serious revolts uh, within the Muslim populations across the British Empire or anywhere else, really, doesn't it? Now, the Caucasus campaign... What could go wrong there, Gary? Well, fancy invading it in winter, do we? Well, the invasion of Russia via the Caucasus mountains led to early successes. Ah! Uh, the, for example, the encirclement of a Russian army at Sarikamis in December 1914... What month is that? That's in the winter. Now, the Russians appealed for help, which triggered the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, Before the British response had been decided on, the Russians 
assisted by awful winter winter conditions. Is that had general al- winter? Had already achieved the destruction of the Turkish army. Yeah, the temperatures drop like a stone. They go way below zero. Uh, the Turks well equipped, did we say? No, we mentioned no. they were ill equipped, <laughs> and as a result, they froze to death in their thousands. The whole of the Ninth Corps was cut off and destroyed with atrocious casualties within a matter of a week. There was no further threat to the Russian borders in the Caucasus. So that's what. That's another thing, guys. That's two of their main threats. Well, uh, now, well, we, we better have uh, what one of us threatening them first, because Gallipoli comes next in in in, in this list. Uh, what what is the Gallipoli campaign? I've never heard of that, Gary. Well, it's a suicidal. Anglo-French lunge to grab the Dardanelles. It's fuelled by idiocy and wish fulfilment. Uh, the idea that would be a good idea if it worked, and th- you still see it. I see it on Twitter all the time. Uh, the greatest strategic move of the war. It would have been brilliant if it had worked, but it never had a chance of working. It, not, not, not in 1915. Do you know what? It could have worked in 1918, but it wouldn't in 15. Uh, so, naval disaster, 18th of March, uh, 1915. Why do I say it's a disaster? Well, because a third of the deployed capital ships were lost, and it was followed up by the assault on the, the Gallipoli Peninsula, of which the less said, the better, frankly. Yep. Well, the Turkish troops fight brilliantly in defence under a combination of brilliant Turkish officers and the solid virtues of some attached German officers. I want to make quite clear, because we get this thing, oh, it was the Germans leading them. The Turkish leadership was perfect, especially at the high and low level. Uh, they, 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 they were brilliant. But this is where Mustafa Kemal uh, Ataturk later on uh, did so well. Um, so uh, just a minor uh, campaign, was it? Well, just listen to these numbers for a moment. Some 410,000 British and 79,000 French troops. Who people forget about. Had faced some 310,000 Turks. I think French casualties were around about 47,000 as well, yeah, I think. Uh, utter defeat was the result and humiliating evacuation. In what month was the well, evacuation completed? Two months, December and January. December 1915 and January 1916. Yes, if only I'd remembered that when I was writing my book. <laughs> now, Mesopotamia, what's happening there? Well, uh, we, the, the, why is it important, firstly? Well, uh, the, the Royal Navy had moved to oil-fired turbines for its whole new generation of warships. Uh, a good deal of Britain's oil supply is sourced from the recently developed oil fields in Persia. And that, that the, the, the pipeline runs to Shat al-Arab, uh, and uh, the refineries on Abadan Island. So, how do we act? Well, in 1914, the British seized control of the key port of Basra. I've heard of that. And gained control of the oil. Hubris led to a push inland up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Now, that's the British disease. Hubris. Yes, through Mesopotamia towards Baghdad. Oh, I think I remember this now, yes. Early successes led them to overreach even more, which led to the surrender of a large British force at Kut el Amara in April 1916. Is that Townsend? Yes, Charles Townsend, who was a perfectly competent general, but was being pushed on and on and uh, overreached himself. Uh, uh, the, the, from then on, we can't be defeated like that, so the theatre sucks in more and more troops, and in the end, the Turks can't hold on, they're outnumbered, and the British finally push all their way to another oil field. It's as if we were greedy. Where do we get to in the end? And again, I want you to note the names of these places from recent history. Well, yeah, they get to Kirkuk to dominate the uh, Mosul air, uh, oil fields, and he said airfields, oil fields. Now, at the point of the armistice on the 30th of October 1918, there was an active strength of some 
217,000 British and Indian soldiers serving in Mesopotamia. That's not, no, 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 Gary, you're under you're under calling this figure because that's not all the British and foreign personnel that we deploy. Oh, yeah, I think you mean there was uh, some 71,000 in the Labour Corps and 42,000 in the inland water transport in addition. Why Why is so much water? Because of the, they, the only way to go anywhere is on the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. But the, that, the, in all, over the period, Gary, have a guess what the total number of sum was. If you get it within 1,000, I'll buy you a pint. 674,000. Wrong. 675,000. Oh, well, I didn't want a point. Now, they, they, they'd been deployed, as you say, over the four years. And of that 675,000, 92,500 became casualties. A lot of that with this disease. Now, we've got to be very careful the next bit. And, and, and to be honest, you need to do your own reading and make your own minds up about this. Um, the, the Armenian massacres have to be mentioned, don't they, Gary? We just have to mention them. Um, there had been a history of massacres of Ar- Armenian enclaves that stretched back into the 19th century and before. Uh, why were the Armenians picked on by the Turks? Well, they were perceived to be a subversive nationalist and Christian element, so a sort of enemy within that might be prone to treachery. Now, what happens is there's a programme of forcible deportation of Armenians uh, moving them out of their ancestral homelands. And this degenerates, and I don't think this is deniable, into what what has been defined as a systematic genocide of the Armenians and the other minority Christian populations within the Ottoman Empire. Uh, overall, it's alleged uh, around a million Armenians were exterminated through direct killing, uh, starvation, torture and forced death marches. And uh, this, these have been de- de- described and defined as a war crime. But it is intensely controversial in Turkey. Who, uh, and the Turkish authorities feel that there is another side to this, which uh, we don't. Uh, but uh, people are entitled to their own opinion, I suppose. Now, in addition, in Arabia, the Arab revolt was a minor distraction to the Palestinian sideshow, but it would attract a great deal of attention and prove of considerable significance in the development of alternative methods of fighting a war. And I think the reason there's so much attention paid to it, other than Alex Churchill's fantastic trips, which she organises, um, which anybody who's interested should uh, contact Alex and go on, uh, is, uh, is, is one of the key figures is, is Lawrence of Arabia. Well, Captain T.E. Lawrence, as he was otherwise known. And there were others, which we're not going to name because no one ever does. Uh, And he formed an effective alliance with Arab insurgents. Now, their campaigns were a thorn in the flesh of the Turks. They avoided frontal attacks on strong points, but harassed the Turks, tormenting them with pinpricks rather than a single decisive blow. Mm, That's right. Now, as other Arabs saw what the insurgents were capable of achieving, so they began to join the revolt against Turkish rule, creating a sort of bandwagon effect. Now, these Arabian irregulars tied down some 50,000 Turkish troops over the last two years of the war. Now, that, so, but there's more campaigns, and these are ones that uh, we, we would normally ask Nikolai. Would you like to explain this? But Nikolai is near. Uh, this is the... The contribution in Galicia and Macedonia. Galicia, the Eastern Front. And uh, from 1916, the Turkish 25th, 15th. Sorry, I'm brain phrase, sorry. Fought alongside the Austro-Hungarians in Galicia on the Eastern Front. Strange breadfellows, but according to Nikolai, they got on 
well enough. Uh, while the 20th Corps hold part of the line alongside the Bulgarians in Macedonia from late 1916. Again, these are strange bedfellows, aren't they, for, for, the, for the Turks? I'm not being no, funny. I mean, they've been history. at war with these people. Uh, also, in addition, you've got Sinai and Palestine. We mentioned Britain had bagsied. Bagsied. Uh, I'm trying to avoid saying suzerainty. Yeah, Britain had gained suzerainty. Suzerainty. Britain had bagged Egypt in 1882. Now, the importance of Egypt lay in its location as the neck containing the jugular of the British Empire. Yeah, the 100 miles of the Suez Canal, which stretches from Portside in the Mediterranean through to Port Suez. Uh, it p- provides a shortened sea route linking the British homeland with uh, her dominions, as they, they like to call them, in India, Australia and New Zealand and others. And others. Uh, if they could... If, if if the Turks could launch a successful operation in Egypt, it would add a great deal of weight to this holy war, the jihad, uh, as declared by the Sultan, and greatly aid in fomenting revolt within Egypt anyway. So what do they do? The Turks make a couple of brave attempts to assault the canal from across the inhospitable wastes of the Sinai Desert. I think, Gary, that the word desert is a clue. And in- inhospitable is a pretty big clue. Yeah, two clues. So they were doomed to failure. They were. Um, then, then, uh, But they fought bravely, by the way, the Turks. And, uh, the British attacked the other way, and they had a, a fair amount of trouble uh, as well, didn't they? The various defeats at Gaza before... Reorganisation and uh, copious re- reinforcements doom the Turks to a string of defeats as they end up totally outnum- out- outnumbered again. Uh, uh, is it a big campaign? Well, no, over- no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, over the four years, Palestine sacked in a total of 1,192,000 men from all over the empire to serve in the campaign. In all, the British suffered 51,451 casualties in battle. And have a listen to this a sobering further 550,000 more through disease. Now, uh, it's difficult to judge what they achieved, but the sentimentality of capturing, recapturing the holy city, which to some religions is Jerusalem, uh, but, but it, it, uh, what, how would you describe this? The Palestine campaign, what, are they, what is it? Well, it's, it's another example of fighting the Turks simply because they're there. So we're here because we're here because, because we're, we're here. here. And, and, and that's there, the case so. with Gallipoli and Mesopotamia. Palestine proved to be a complete waste of resources. Now, in the long term, the Turks comprehensively lose the war uh, and they were totally defeated by the time they surrendered on 30th October 1918. And there's even a landing we always reference, totally unopposed, now forgotten, the British troops on V Beach at Helles, Gallipoli, on the 10th of November 1918. Um, And by the end of 1918, we've bagged a lot. The British and French have bagged a lot. We've taken everything at Gallipoli. We've taken the Narrows Forts. We've even taken Constantinople. They're all under the iron grip of the Allies. Uh, And that's the real result of the war. Allied victory and total Turkish defeat. Um, now, the best. who was the best-known Turkish war leader? Well, you, you referenced him earlier. Uh, it was Mustafa Kemal, who was the hero of Gallipoli. And he would rise to become the leader of his country and uh, would be known as Kemal Ataturk. Father of his people. That's Ataturk means, yeah. Now, for all his achievements at Gallipoli, he was aware that the wheel of history had turned in between 1915 and 1918. Now, no one could have put it more bluntly than he did in his speech to the Second National Conference in 1927. And this, you're going to tell us what Kemal said. The group of powers, which included the Ottoman government, had been defeated in the Great War. 
The Ottoman army had been crushed on every front. An armistice had been signed under severe conditions. The prolongation of the Great War had left the people exhausted and impoverished. Those who had driven the people and the country into the general conflict had fled and now cared for nothing but their own safety. The army had been deprived of their arms and ammunition, and this state of affairs continued. The Entente powers did not consider it necessary to respect the terms of the armistice. On various pretexts, their men at war and troops remained. Now, in all, Gary, this is, you know, serious business. Some 771,000 Turks died during the war. Um, And uh, there's a feeding frenzy afterwards. And this is symbolised by a secret Sykes-Picot agreement signed back in 16th of May uh, 1916. And this was between Britain, France and Russia, which was at that point still in the war. And it divided the spoils three ways. Go through it for me, Gary. Go on, tell me. Let's, Let's go through it. Well, the British would get protectorates or control of part of Palestine, Jordan and southern Iraq, Mesopotamia. French would get Lebanon, Syria, southeast Turkey and northern Iraq. Now, Russia was promised, at last, Constantinople and control of the Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits, in addition to parts of Western Armenia. Now, this is one of those ones where you have to say, you'd look at this and you say, oh, so imperialism is real. You know, you've got that famous Mitchell and Webb uh, joke, uh, they're wearing the black... Are we the bad guys? Are we the bad guys? Well, we are the bad guys, but the Turks are bad guys as well. You've got to remember those Armenian massacres. You've got to remember this is this is a a cruel, hard, terrible world at this point, isn't it? Now, one of the funny things is it's not funny. It's it's perverse. We we we've contradicted ourselves so many times in talking with various peoples, haven't we? Who had the British promised Palestine to? Well, they they promised to both establish an Arab state and an independent Jewish state in Palestine. Now, <laughs> what happens? The, those Ruskies. Mm, the Soviet Revolution resulted in the uh, troublemaking unilateral publication of the full clauses of the treaty in November 1917. Uh, would that cause any trouble? It caused a substantial amount of suspicion between the various Arab and Jewish factions. Uh, yeah, of course it did. Um, now, there's some backtracking when the Americans come into the war, because the Americans at least pretend to be nice uh, at that stage anywhere in the world. The world. Uh, and there's a sort of anglo French agreement on 7th of November 1918 promising the establishment of, of indigenous governments in Syria and Mesopotamia. Um, did we do that? Well, it was like uh, it was, it would prove to be largely for public consumption. After the war, the web of conflicting agreements led to almost everyone being disappointed and many bitter and vengeful accusations of bad faith. In essence, the British and French, with a good deal of cynicism, continued to pursue their own long-term colonial aims, uh, now freed from the controlling competition of Russia. The result for this, Gary, what would you say was? I I know what I think. What do you think? Well, you could argue it's the birth of many of the Middle Eastern problems that exist to this very day, not just over the question of Jewish or Arab control of Palestine or Israel, but also over the arbitrary nature of the borders drawn for Iraq, Syria and Turkey. Well, those borders are straight lines, a lot of them. They're just drawn on the map, aren't they? Do they reflect the, 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 the populations that live within them? No. In uh, fact, largely, they displace populations as a result. And the thing is that... that the trouble that resulted is all part of the grim legacy of the Great War. So when we're looking at reading the news and modern day news, a lot of it is impacted on by this. Well, Gary, it's been a, a, a fairly serious podcast, but uh, thank you for joining me in it. I, I, I felt as if I'd have come apart without you. 
Uh, thank you for inviting me. And can you pull yourself together? Cheers, Cheers. Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it